We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. So this is a great partnership that was between the NIH, AAPA, PALH, and Canopy, and that it created this program that allows for the participant that takes the course to take one, two, or three sessions. And if they take all three sessions, are able to take this test and become certified as a medical Spanish provider. Well, welcome to season four, episode 68. Today, we speak with Paola Gonzalez, who is a physician assistant from the MD Anderson Cancer Center and is also president-elect for the Physician Associates for Latino Health. We also speak with Christian Reynosa, who is their current student president. And we're going to talk about their organization and the wonderful work that they are doing to improve the diversity of the profession. As always, you can learn more about our guests at our website, www.papathpodcast.com. Well, we're very excited to have our guest today joining us from the PAs for Latino Health. We're joined by Paola Gonzalez, who is the president-elect for this organization that's doing wonderful work, and their student president, Christian Reynosa, who is going to join us and talk to us as well. But first, Paola, could we start with your path to becoming a PA first? So I, um, since I was a little girl, I always felt that I was going to be in some form of health career. Like my, my mom and my dad always said, Whenever somebody was bleeding, I was the first one trying to figure out how I could help. So I've never been skimmish in that aspect. But when I immigrated to the United States, it was something that kind of just stayed with me. And so throughout just learning English and then eventually getting all my high school education and everything, I knew that I wanted to enter into the health professions. I actually thought that I was going to be pre-med. I got into George Washington University for their pre-med program. At, at the same time, though, around that time period, my physics teacher actually mentioned to me the PA profession and said, have you, have you heard about this profession? This was back in 97, so I'm dating myself. But yes, back in 97, um, he said, have you heard of this? And I'm like, no, what is it about? And he said, it's a really cool um, you know, profession and it gives you some more uh, flexibility. You're able to kind of do different specialties and it gives you some like work-life balance. Have you heard it? I'm like, no, but let me look into it further. So I actually applied to Nova Southeastern University down in Florida and I got in. And then I had to have that big conversation of like, where do I go? Because I've got George Washington University and I've got Nova Southeastern that has accepted me and what do I do? But at the same time, I'm again, going back to that history, I'm a first generation immigrant. So there was no college fund, there was no finance backing from my parents. My my dad is, you know, was raising me at the time alone. And so we really didn't have any funds that I could be like, oh yeah, I can totally go to this really expensive school or, or I can go to this other school, even if they don't give me enough money, because 
we didn't have that. So it was based on whatever financial aid and whatever scholarships I could gain from school. And what it turned out to be really is that the package that I got from George Washington University was better. And so, and my best friend was going there and we could room together. So I went on my path my freshman year to be in pre-med, but I was also taking 17 college credit hours and I was working 30 hours a week to make up the difference for what the scholarships didn't cover and what the financial aid didn't cover. And I was burning out. And I said to myself, like, there's no way, like, I can't keep doing this. So I left and I left and I went back to New York. I moved in with a friend. We were renting an apartment together and I was working full-time, going back to prereqs and really making the conscious effort to get back into PA school, but now having to do it locally and kind of as a commuter person, a commuter student. And so, yeah, so I worked full-time for about two and a half more years until I got all my prereqs for PA school through the community college and, you know, go to work during the day, go to school at night and on the weekends. And then finally in 2000 and late 2000, I got uh, approved to go to Turo College at the time. It was their first program at um, out of Winthrop Hospital. So we were like their, their new kids coming out into that program. So we were in this one little basement classroom and all the teachers would come in and teach and come out the other side. And we just sat there all day. And we're only given like the break uh, to go eat and then come on right back. So that's really kind of what led to that path. And, you know, it was still very much a commuter PA school. Like we didn't really have that network of being on campus or like that. Our, our little family really bonded in the fact that we were just there all day. We would start at eight in the morning and end at seven, eight thirty at night. So that's kind of how I made it to that area, but it was definitely a long path. It was not the automatic out of high school, but for sure I was one of the few that um, was not a second career in the PA program that I was in. There was many more second career students at the time than me. Sure. And Paola, you ended up doing family practice, internal and occupational medicine, and oncology. Can you tell us a little bit about those choices and that path for you as well? Sure. So what's funny enough is I had my first rotation was in this internal medicine practice office. And I basically showed up for my first rotation after having all my equipment being stolen from my car the night before in New York. And so I showed up with like a deer in headlights look to my first preceptor. And he was this big jovial, like Cuban guy. And he was like, it's going to be okay. You'll be all right. And so I'm just like, I'm so sorry. Like I lost everything. I'll buy new stuff. They're like, we don't need it actually. Like you, you're okay if you don't have it. Just get a stethoscope and you're cool. And I'm like, okay. And so like him and I really bonded. And honestly, his practice was amazing. Um, he's still in practice now, Dr. Garden. And, you know, he, he really taught me a lot about billing, coding, you know, really documentation and all the things that I don't think back then they were really doing a great job with. And it stayed with me. And so when I finished PA school, um, he said to me, he's like, you have a job here if you ever want it. And he also did, he's, he still is the medical director for the fire departments out there in Long Island, in New York. And so he was like, whenever I'm doing occupational medicine, come with me and we'll do, you know, uh, the physical exams that we do for them. And I'll tell you, I've never found so many umbilical and abdominal hernias in my life until I was there because there were so many firefighters that had all that heavy lifting. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it was like crazy how many is like, stop looking for them. You're looking too much. And I'm like, but they're there. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so um, I finished PA school and I started working with him because it was just a way that he let me work convenient hours while I was still kind of studying to get through my pants. Because in New York, they do let you have a temporary license until you pass your boards and then you get your permanent license. But I knew I didn't want them to stay in New York long term. I really hated the cold winters. And so I said, no, I'm going to go down to Florida because every New Yorker moves down to Florida that I know. And, um, and so I moved down there and I worked in family practice there for about two years. And then um, at the time I was getting married, my ex-husband at the time said, you know, I really don't want to live in Florida. And I said, okay, I'm cool with moving as long as we stay kind of in the South. Keep me in the warm weather and I'm chill. And, and so he knew somebody here in Houston and I said, okay, let's go see what Houston's about. And I started interviewing with some primary care offices, kind of thinking the same thing. I'm just going to stay with primary care. And I put my name out there with some headhunters and they got me interviews at MD Anderson. And it was funny because I, I thought I was only interviewing for the endocrine position. And I thought, okay, diabetes, I know that world. Thyroid, yeah, I could do that. Um, but when I showed up to MD Anderson, they had like a whole lineup of like all these different departments to interview with. So I was interviewing with head and neck and GI medical oncology. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I thought I was doing diabetes. Like what the heck? I never saw myself in oncology, but I was thinking, okay, I can slowly step into it through diabetes. But it turned out that, you know, at least three of the departments that I interviewed who really were interested, ultimately two um, gave me an offer. One was GI medical oncology and the other one was endocrine. And I really connected to the endocrinologist that I uh, interviewed with. He, um, my specialty is thyroid cancer. He's actually the chief of the department, Dr. Sherman. And so I said, okay, well, if I'm going to come into this role, then I think endocrine is where I feel more comfortable. I really was a little afraid of GI morbidity, mortality, just kind of the doom and gloom that you hear sometimes from that department. But essentially, yeah, MD Anderson ended up relocating. They paid some of the relocation expenses. And it was honestly one of those decisions that I never thought. I never even thought Texas thought in my mind. But it has been the best decision ever. I've been at Anderson now since 2007. Since then, funny enough, I went to radiation and then again to GI surgical oncology. So I still kind of loop back to where I kind of started. And it's just been a really great experience and it's really opened up so much opportunities and educational components of it, as well as just patient care. It's been really rewarding helping those patients through that journey. One of my biggest regrets as a PA student was I had an elective at MD Anderson Cancer Center that was set up for, it was going to be my last rotation, but I had accepted a job with an internist already. And he asked, could I do a rotation with him just so I could get a head start in understanding the practice? And so I gave it up. And while that was a wonderful way to get kind of moved into the new, new practice, I've always regretted that opportunity to enjoy that experience with a really high quality institution. So good for you. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think I, I really, I didn't even know MD Anderson existed, to be honest with you. And this is coming from New York, where you really kind of have such a conglomerate of medical practices, but sure. I've never heard of it. And even to this day, like there's people that still don't know, you know, what MD Anderson is about. But I think if you're in the cancer world, you know who we are. Absolutely. Um, and so it's been a great experience. And like I said, I just, I've been able to, again, as a PA, flip 
specialties, right? I've been able to do endocrine, um, which meant thyroid cancer, adrenal tumors, pituitary tumors. And funny enough, I have a couple of family members that ended up with pituitary tumors. So it was kind of like, oh, I know exactly what we need to do. This is what you need to see. And they weren't even here in the States. They were actually back in Colombia, where I'm originally from. But it was just interesting that it all kind of looped back in. And as a P, I've been able to do, like I said, the GU radiation, GI surgery, I've done vascular access. And now like three months ago, I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of surgical oncology. I would love to try something different. And they're letting me do breast medical oncology now. So I think it's just great because it gives you an opportunity to try something new without having to go back to do a subspecialty if I was a physician. So it was the best for me. Yeah, that certainly has always been touted as one of the benefits of our profession is that flexibility. So Christian, we'd like to hear a little bit from you about your path to the PA profession. You're currently a student. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you landed yourself in a PA program? Absolutely. Thank you all for having me. Um, First of all, I I knew you guys were going to ask me this question. I've been racking my brain, you know, like, how do I come up with like some kind of a polished answer? But, you know, the reality is, so many of us have such a unique way into the PA profession, into PA school. There isn't a typical route. I just want to preface with everything. I'm going to say that I'm just fortunate to have had very key people in my life that have served as what I like to call a gateways of opportunity. They've always kind of presented like a new opportunity that didn't even know existed, didn't know that was there for me. And then they've also imparted some awesome lessons of like service, sacrifice, and community. And I think all of that together bolded itself to where I am today. So I graduated high school in 2012. And because of my conservative and more religious background, I thought, well, I'm going to go be a pastor, right? I just want to serve the community and I want to help people in this kind of a religious and spiritual front. I get there and I'm in line to register uh, myself as a student and declare my major and they call my name. And when I come up to the table, I have this epiphany. I don't want to be a pastor. This isn't for me, you know? And so... I declare a secondary education major and I finish out the semester. My parents always taught me, if you're going to start something, finish it. So you're there, start the semester, finish the semester. We'll come back and we'll debrief and we'll move forward. So I took a year and a half break and um, I had a family friend who introduced me to a psychiatric outpatient clinic where I was lucky enough to land a job you know, having a semester of school under my belt. And I helped with, you know, different administrative tasks. And in that year and a half, I find out from my mom that she's like, hey, there's a school in Pensacola, Florida called Pensacola Christian College. And they have a medical degree, a pre-medicine degree. And I thought, well, that sounds cool. So that was, again, that key, and a key person who kind of led me that way. So in 2014, I enrolled, I get in as a pre-med, I declare my major. I meet my my wife, Anna, there, and then I start developing a passion, you know, a heart for medical missions. And I kind of came to the conclusion, like, that's the capacity which I would like to serve eventually. That's the end goal. And so I get to my senior year of my undergrad, and a friend of mine, Levi, he's like, hey, have you heard of what a PA is? I don't know what a, I didn't even know a PA existed. And so he goes, have you heard of what a PA is? I said, no, what is it? He goes, it's physician assistant. And he was explaining the differences between a PA and medical school. And he's like, I'm going to do that. I was like, okay. And so then I graduated 2018 and I head back home to California and I take a three-year break. At this point, I'm out of school for three years and I take a job at Starbucks as a barista because it's just for whatever reason, a bucket list item that I've always had. 
to be a barista. So I did that. And then I started shadowing another key person in my life, Dr. Joseph Abdut. He's a pediatric cardiologist in LA County, and he works at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And he helped, helped kind of mentor me. And he would let me shadow in his clinic. He let me go to the cath lab with him. He got me a research position at CHLA, um, working on hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And he said, hey, if you want to be a PA, you need to do it. Um, he's like, you have to find what you're passionate about. You need to find what you want to do and go do it. And so I got my patient contact hours. My wife and I get married in 2020 and we say, hey, let's move to Tennessee on a hope and a prayer that I will get into Lincoln Memorial University. I had two friends at the time, one of them being Levi, the friend that I just told you about earlier. And he says, hey, I think you can get in here. You should apply. So I apply 2020. I'm very fortunate. I get in, I start school, Lincoln Memorial University, Harrogate, Tennessee in 2021. And now I'm a clinical year student. I graduate August 5th, 2023, which is only a few weeks away. And I could not be more excited. Oh, the end is in sight. Yes. Yes. That well, is very exciting. Yeah. Congrats. Well, we've all, the three of us have been there, so we, we can totally relate. That's a, that's a great moment. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Physician Associates for Latino Health. This is a organization that is a recognized caucus of the American Academy of Physician Associates. And your purpose statement that you have on your website, I, I love it. It's to render loyal and honest service to the medical profession and the public, to develop continuing medical or medically related education programs, and to promote the physician associate or assistant. We can talk a little bit about what that means through the education of medical professionals and the general population. And your organization even provides scholarships for students. So whoever would like to take that question first, I'd love to have you share why you're involved with the organization and kind of what the organization has been up to these days. Absolutely. I think I, I would like to take a part of that. I think Christian would be a great add-on to tell us how he benefited from the scholarship. But more than anything, I think our organization and how I got involved with it, honestly, is I happened to jo join AAPA many, many years ago. And I will tell you, this organization has been around over 30 years. I didn't know about it until I attended the AAPA virtual conference two years ago. And I wish I had known about it before, because I think I would have been way more involved had I known about it. So that's one thing that we've definitely worked on. But I joined with the understanding that it was about promoting and diminishing healthcare inequities in our community because I've seen them in my practice over the past 20 years in the different scopes that I've worked in. And so the organization really is focusing on increasing diversity in our profession, which I think is so crucial to see more of us out there and helping our community, giving back to our community, serving our community, to increase education about what our community faces and spreading that word to all providers, because there's a lot of opportunities for people to hear about some differences in the key care for our community that may not always be seen because we're not always involved in the research protocols that are out there for treatments for medications. And so I think it's important to hear that part too. But ultimately, our, our group is really aiming to give back to the community and to the profession. And so we do that by trying to support pre-PA students that are trying to get into PA school, whether that is trying to help and mentor and provide opportunities to understand the interview process. We're working on trying to get some virtual um, shadowing opportunities as an opportunity there. 
but also our PA students and kind of giving them some path and guiding ways into leadership aspects for when they come PAs themselves and are in a practical setting, but also for them to be involved in the advocacy for our profession. I think that's so key to, to start at the beginning root base before we get overwhelmed and burned out by all the intricacies that healthcare and insurance companies and practices kind of throw on us, right? Before we lose that twinkle in our eye, I think it's important to have that in there. And then lastly, being able to support them by scholarship. So we, we do provide scholarships to students that are really making an, a conscious effort to give back to their community, whether that is through doing volunteer events, but some of them have created these own clinics, this free clinics for the community. And it's really been amazing uh, to be part of that process. This year, I was actually involved in reviewing some of the applications. And it's so rewarding to see what people are willing to do when they're engaged and involved in a community. Last year, we were able to give, I believe, over $16,000 in scholarships. And this year, we're not able to give as much, but the people that were able to get us, so we had seven scholarships this year, were key people that even were not Latino. They were actually um, one was Caucasian, one was Asian, but that are so heavily invested in our community that really shined. And so it's a great way for us to kind of give back to that community. We, we hold monthly CME um, that's included for all our members and many of our students um, also come into the group and learn from that. So I think that we, we really just want to give back and be part of the change. I think one of the unique things about your organization that I learned when we met earlier this month, Paola, was the way that your organization raises funds. So many specialty organizations and caucuses for the AAPA try to put on scholarships, but Usually that's through donations of their members, and that's always, you know, much usually much smaller scholarships. But you've created something really unique that I think not only is interesting to our audience, but our audience, many who want to learn Spanish, could actually kind of, it's a win-win. They work with your organization, they work with the tool that you have, and then your organization gets some money back. So can you tell us more about Canopy and the way you've developed that partnership? Yeah, so this was a great partnership that was between the NIH, AAPA, PALH, and Canopy, and that it created this program that allows for the participant that takes the course to take one, two, or three sessions, and if they take all three sessions, are able to take this test and become certified as a medical Spanish provider. Uh, medical Spanish speaking provider, I apologize. And the network of how it all worked out is with this partnership, the Canopy Group actually provides a special discount for AAPA members to a point, as well as non-AAPA members, and uh, a percentage of the sales for each of those programs that is sold comes directly back to the organization, to the PA Foundation, under our fund of PAs for Latino Health, and it is those funds that we're able to use to provide scholarships. So when we have more people engaged and involved in learning medical Spanish, not only are we helping the community be able to communicate with our community of Latino Spanish-speaking patients, but also it gives back to the organization. And then we, all those funds go directly back to all the students as a scholarship. We don't see that money. It stays at the PA Foundation. They just, you know, give out the money once we say these are the people that we like to award. So it's a nice way to kind of, you know, make it a continuous circle of giving and helping. And 
I believe now the data may be different, but I recall data on in the AAPA surveys or NCCPA surveys that showed that 23% of PAs in the United States use a second language in the care of patients, but 80% of them use Spanish. Of the 23%, 80% are using Spanish. So it is clearly, uh, and to do it well is important because we we know there are cultural nuances or linguistic nuances. I've experienced it personally caring for patients where you you need to be on top of that and either use a really great translator or work hard to become fluent at, at it yourself. So I applaud the work that you're doing. That's amazing. And, you know, we are like the second largest minority group in the United States. We have continuous flow of immigrants into the country that, you know, are Spanish speaking. And it's not just that. I mean, I can tell you from my own personal experience, my dad speaks English. He can communicate in it. But if he goes to the doctor, he wants to find a doctor that speaks Spanish because he feels a whole lot more comfortable being able to express what's going on, how he's feeling, and also understand what the issue is. Because he goes to a doctor that doesn't speak Spanish and he gets me on the phone and he's like, I need you to listen because I know he's going to tell me what's going on. I'm going to be nodding my head the whole time. And then the moment I walk away, I forget what he said. And I, when I'm not be able to tell you, and then you're not going to be able to help me make sure that I follow through. So I think it's important for that connection between the provider and the patient and the trust that our community has with their caregiver. So I think it's it's one of those little things that we keep seeing that, you know, Spanish is definitely growing. If you call anywhere now, press one for Spanish, you know, it's there, right? So we're here and I don't think we're going anywhere, but I think in order to serve our patients well, and to have that full component of DEI that we are all speaking about nowadays, that we need to be able to broaden our horizons and hopefully try to be as providers as inclusive as possible and be able to communicate with our patients. And that's been a big goal of PLH to really push medical Spanish to be included in a lot of the PA programs if possible, because the, the earlier we start that process, at the student level, I think it's a lot easier for that student to remain engaged and aware of the disparities that our community faces and the connection that that language barrier makes a difference of. Yeah, Commissioner, would you like to kind of speak to that from, from your perspective as a student? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I didn't, again, like Paula was saying, I didn't, I wasn't even aware PALH was a thing until my didactic year of uh, LMU. Our program director, Mr. Robert Bay, he sent me an email. He forwarded me an email about a scholarship opportunity with PALH. And at the time, I was volunteering about twice a month at First Love on Main, which was a free clinic in Morristown, Tennessee. I would drive down there about, about an hour, and my main role was to translate. There was a lot of Spanish-speaking patients who were seeking free care because they don't know how to navigate the healthcare world. It's a beast, you know? And so they'd come to this free clinic and they'd get physicals and they'd get be some acute care, sometimes some referrals to specialists who were willing to lend their services to these patients. And so my role was to kind of do their intake paperwork, take their vitals and go into the room with, with the provider and kind of translate for them. And so he was aware of what I was doing. And so he said, have you heard of Physician Associates for Latino Health? I said, I haven't heard about this. And so he forwards me the email and it's a scholarship opportunity. I apply. He is gracious enough to write the recommendation letter for me and I apply for it. And lo and behold, I was a scholarship winner. So I use that money 
to help me get to the clinic and back and also to get to go to AAPA because I wanted to go to the PALH meeting. So I said, hey, these people were nice enough to give me a scholarship. I'd like to be to go to their meeting and see what it's all about. I'm in the meeting and they announced, hey, so we're starting a student alliance this year. Who wants to be a part of it? And there was like four students in the room. And so we all kind of raise our hand. We look around and it's just four of us. And we're like, I guess we will do it. And so I was very fortunate to be voted on as the student president of the Student Alliance within Physician Assistance for Latino Health. And three words kind of come to my mind about like, at least from a student standpoint, like what I'd like to try to impart or do and help with other students is I think of equip, involve, and advocate, you know. So I think of equipping other students in the arena of canopy, right? That's kind of what we're trying to push as we're trying to encourage other people to sign on to, and you all talked about it, so we don't have to go into that much more detail. I'd like to involve more students, involve them in PALH, involve them in the different committees that we have. And I don't know if we're going to talk more about the committees a little bit later, but we can get into that a little bit more and then advocate, you know, and just be a voice for the Latino and the Hispanic community. I'm in a program of 85 or 86 students, I believe, and I am one of two. Hispanic students. And as far as I think, as much as I'm concerned, I think I'm the only Spanish speaking one. And so somebody has to advocate, right? Someone has to speak up. Someone has to make sure that we have a seat at the table and that our community is heard. And more than anything, that others are aware about what affects our community. And so that's kind of what my role has been within PALH. I've really worked hard to make sure that my classmates and, you know, others that I know that are aware of what's going on in the Latino community in the context of, you know, medicine and healthcare. Have you as students designed a strategy to to really start to kind of try to reach out to more pre-PA students? And, and what does that look like from, from your perspective? Yeah, we definitely have. So our student alliance has grown exponentially this last year. And I feel like social media has had such a positive influence in this aspect. We've had a awesome public relations committee who has been advertising and just posting and making students aware of the opportunities and the resources that are there for them. And so we've had a lot of pre-PA and PA students reach out to us through social media and they are like, oh, what is PLH all about? And we explain it to them and we get them involved. And then they'll join PLH as a student member. And now they are privy to all the resources that we can offer. So we have started a mentor mentorship program where pre-PA students can get connected with PA students or with PAs. Is that right, Paola? They can get students or PAs? So the pre-PAs normally get connected to PA students because I think there's a lot more engagement and, you know, most of our PA students are not dinosaurs like me who were graduated 20 years ago. <laughs> and there was no, a lot of the requirements that are there now were not there when I went. So I think getting the PA students that have recently gone through the process of interviewing, getting into PA school is a lot easier than having someone like me who may not know all the nuances of how hard it, may, it is now and all the different things that are being requested. So pre-PAs are usually connected to PA students and then PA students get connected to a fellow PA so that they can have that next guidance level. And our goal is that eventually those PA students, once they graduate, will stay in the loop and be the next fellow PAs that will mentor the next set of PA students. You mentioned the opportunity to get involved in some, some committees. What, what does that look like? 
I could take that one. Yeah. So we have multiple committees within PILH. We have, I co-chair the ad, the legislative and advocacy committee. And this committee is mainly focused on making others aware of the legislative issues that are going on in the different states that pertain to PAs and how this can affect, you know, our community, the Latino and Hispanic community. For example, we have really tried to voice what's going on in Florida with the laws that they're trying to pass or have passed where now medical patients, Hispanic patients will have to declare their immigration status on paperwork, right? And that creates a barrier to care. And so we're trying to really advocate and we have students who are in Florida who are part of the, this committee who can now write to their representatives. They can write to their senators and they have the backing of PALH. And we're just trying to advocate for patients on that front, but also make it aware to everyone else. Um, we're trying to make aware of the positives as well, right? Like the new optimal team practice laws that are being passed in different states that are removing some of the barriers between physician and physician associate relationships that would allow for physician associates to better serve the Latino and Hispanic community kind of undoing some of that red tape. So that's one committee there. We have a public relations committee. That committee's focus is on getting the word out on things going on in PALH. So they are very busy on posting on Instagram. They're posting on Facebook. They're posting on LinkedIn. And they're just making sure that we are getting eyes on what's going on with PALH and making sure that we make sure all this information gets out to them. We have a scholarship committee, and the scholarship committee is the the folks who review all of the scholarships. And um, yeah, they, they review the scholarships and they choose the winners. We have a DEI committee who is focused on diversity and equity and inclusion and making sure that minority groups they are being heard and making sure that we are advocating for them. We have a historian committee, Paula. I believe we have like a history committee as well. So again, I think with our historian committee, what we've been doing there is more with connecting with the PA Historical Society to make sure that what we have been doing is, you know, documented and, and all the different people that have been involved in our organization are documented there as well. I don't think it's as active as some of our other committees. We also have the mentorship committee, which is the one that kind of unites everybody from the PAA, PPA, and fellows committee. So I think those are our big ones. Um, I think they just cycle. So our scholarship committee is usually more active in the spring because that's when we give our scholarships. Our mentorship committee usually is more active in the fall because that's when we start everything up. Then the last committee we have is our CME committee, which is one that works on a combination of PPAs, PA students, and fellow PAs trying to find topics that are relevant to the organization, to our members, but also to the community so that we can find speakers and coordinate all those efforts to have the monthly meetings with our goal eventually to have a one-day regional in-person meeting that focuses on peace for Latino health and all the associated aspects of learning and the healthcare of our community. So we have a fair amount of educators that listen to this podcast. And I guess my next question would be, how can they get involved with your organization and how can the pre-PAs get involved so that you can build your membership and continue to spread the great work that you're doing? Absolutely. So we we definitely have uh, an understanding that resources are limited for many of our students. So we do make it as, as affordable as possible for our pre-PAs to enter our membership. It's a $15 membership, covers their yearly dues, and it covers all of these things, right? Their 
their mentorship capabilities, their abilities to go to our meetings, their ability to network. And now we even have this agreement with uh, Lincoln Memorial University in Tampa, where any of our pre-PA students that have all the requirements uh, met for their program, if they're PALH students, actually will be guaranteed an interview with the program. So we are very proud of that, that communication or that agreement that we have with them. We'd love to do more of that with other schools because I think it's a great path to increase the amount of minority students in the programs and increase diversity within our profession, which I think is so critical. But additionally, we are always open to speakers. We're always calling out for speakers. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a voluntary process. Um, we usually try to make it in the evenings. We hold it on our Zoom platform. We are as flexible as possible, but we're always open to having anyone come out and speak to us um, because our, our membership really enjoys learning and getting to see what else and what other opportunities are out there. That's great. I just have to say, from my perspective uh, at SC, when I was there for that 11 years, I saw the number of Latinos and Latinas joining the PA profession triple in the course of a decade. And I think one of the observations I'll have is that my sense is families and, and the students themselves, as they become aware of the profession, and as more role, uh, role models have come out into the profession, they've recognized that it's a wonderful option for a health-interested future. And, uh, you know, maybe perhaps early on we weren't as well-known or the term assistant may have uh, turned some people away. Uh, but ultimately, it seems like there is a, a movement growing among that community that has been a wonderful, at least for me, experience to see as we've uh, really reached a, uh, reached a tipping point of numbers and the richness of the cultures of all the different representations of those communities from all the different countries in Central and South America and Mexico it's really, it's, you know, something that people should really explore because I think it's needed. It represents the communities that we see are often underserved. And also uh, it brings a richness to our own profession as well. Agreed. I think the other thing that I always think about and, and something that I even brought up at our LAS meeting last September in um, Washington, DC is because we're so diverse in our communities and in our cultures, it's very difficult to create a one answer for the care of our community. I distinctly, and I still say this as an example, I distinctly remember having a talk on obesity management that was done at LAS last year. And it was actually promoted by the caucus on obesity health. And I thought, this is great. I mean, I'm in Texas, right? We are a community that has a significant amount of obesity, particularly in our Latino community. And as they were going through their, you know, their presentation, you know, what I noticed is that they were telling us, oh, if you go to our website, there's all these resources and there's all these things that are available for obesity management and nutrition. And I happened to have my laptop on me and I'm like, let me look. And I started going on there and looking. And, you know, I have to say I wasn't shocked because it's, it's a common thing. None of them were in Spanish to start. And there was no inclusion of culture in any of it. And, and so I got up to the podium and I said, I truly respect your work and I appreciate you bringing this to our attention. But as a Latina provider who has a family that does have some obese family members, it's going to be quite difficult to tell my grandmother that she can't have her arepas or telling, you know, on, you know, you can't have your rice and beans and you need to do cauliflower rice and you need to do 
all this is just not culturally inclusive. And that's just Latinos, right? It goes the same for the Asian community, the Indian community. You can't strip our cultural food that we grew up with that we want to you know embrace even with my kids like my kids eat rice and beans every day like no issues um and that's just part of who we are right they'll still eat their chicken nuggets and fries but I think more importantly is I want to have them know what our Colombian culture is about and I'm sure that goes with every other community so I think if we are going to make a change in our community we need to be inclusive of that culture and making sure that if we're making nutritional suggestions that we think about those cultures and we say, well, maybe instead of doing cauliflower rice, how about you do a quarter cup of rice? And we talk about more about portion sizes while still keeping that food there yeah. that is going to be inclusive of that culture versus just saying you can't have all of it and you can only have them. I like I like what you said, because for me, one of my evolutions of thought from my colleagues educating me about the point you just made. You used to be, we want to work to be culturally competent. Then it was to be culturally sensitive. Now it's to be culturally humble and show humility and interest. And each individual brings a different story to the table. So we can't use stereotypical language. We have to explore and understand the unique cultural practices of the patient in front of us, regardless of standardization language we use in the United States with Hispanic uh, for ethnicity, with Asian American, African American, et cetera. So I, I think uh, it's a really important point to dig deeper and, and show the humility to be interested and curious. And I think one hard thing is that it's really difficult to assess how many Latino PA providers we have because AAPA does not have a, a clear way to tease us out. And so I think that's, that's I think, another difficulty in being able to show our pre-PAs and our PA students really that we are out here and that, you know, there are many of us out here. I think that the hard part is getting us united to show, hey, we've been there. We've walked your shoes. We know it's hard. We know that your family may not know what a PA is. I mean, I still have to explain it to my family in Colombia. They're like, oh, so you're a doctor? I'm like, no, I'm not a doctor. I'm like, it's different because my profession doesn't exist in Colombia, right? And it doesn't exist right. in many of our countries. And so I think that has been the key part that we're seeing a lot more Latinos here in the States that are entering the profession because they hear about it here, but are in our home countries, they don't know what we're learning, like our name is. And I think that's the big barrier that Puerto Rico is facing, right? With their name situation in their school over there at San Juan Bautista, that they keep wanting to call them Asistente Medico, which is not the correct term, they're Asociado Medico. So I think that's where like PALH is continuing to bring advocacy and, and we're continuing to work with the Puerto Rico caucus to help them in their cause too, because, you know, they're treating our community and their Puerto Ricans are part of the U.S., you know, so I think that's, there's, a, there's so much that we can do, but I think we can only do it if we have more people engaged and involved as Christian was saying. Yeah, can I piggyback a little bit on the um, previous observation that Kevin, you were making, which is awesome. You were saying that you're starting to see a little bit more of the Hispanic and Latino community providing more providers, right, into our field. And I think a lot of it has to do with making sure that they're aware that it's an option. Again, I feel very fortunate in my life. A lot of, I didn't know that I had these options until they were presented to me. And a lot of these underserved communities now I'm going to make up a word, tend to be like under aware of what options are available for them and just what they can do 
if they wanted to do it, if they knew it was an option. So I think a really important part is serving these communities and providing medicine, but also serving them in the, in the sense that let them know like, hey, you can be doing this too. And then you can come back to this community and you can serve the community. And so I think that's a really important part of what the Student Alliance is going to be trying put, to push this year, which is trying to get more involved in PA clubs, right? Pre-PA clubs and undergrads and in the high schools and the middle schools, whoever will let us speak and let them know like, hey, you guys can do this. You know, we were in your shoes. My family's from Mexico. They did not speak English growing up. They learned English as I learned English growing up. And I've been there. I've had to translate for mom. I've had to translate for dad. None of us understood the healthcare field. And, you know, here we are. And I was the first generation to get into college. I don't know how to apply for FAFSA. Like I've been there. So now it's time to go back, let these students know, hey, you have these opportunities and we're here to mentor you through the process. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great summary. And um, we really appreciate both of you for being here today and for helping us understand your organization and how people can get involved. I think that we've got a, a lot of students, a lot of pre-PA students and a lot of PAs and PA educators who listen, who we really hope will spread the word about your organization and uh, find new ways for, for folks to get involved. Yeah, thank you both so much. We appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you and your success in the future. Well, thank you for having us. This was great. And I'm just having the opportunity to share who we are and what we're trying to do is just a great opportunity that we're very thankful for your time. Yes, thank you all. We appreciate you uh, allowing us to use your platform to get the word out. Well, Steph and I want to thank our guests, Paola Gonzalez and Christian Reynosa, for sharing their perspectives about the PA profession and sharing the incredible work that they're doing as part of the PAs for Latino Health. next week as we share some very exciting news about the podcast's future and Steph and I wrap up with our season four finale. It's an episode that'll be short, but you certainly don't want to miss it if you are interested in where we're heading next. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you're walking in life and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the University of Arizona.